Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to Day 103 in the Standard Issue house. I'm Mickey Noonan and my new glasses feel weird on my face. They look nice though. Thanks, love. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and this weekend I had a lovely stroll round Columbia Flower Market. It was packed to the gunnels, which was, oh no, of course I didn't. I stayed in my flat because I'm not a moron. Uh, and I'm Jen Offord. And on Sunday I cried because I couldn't take my belly button piercing out. So week one of solitary confinement has gone very well indeed. Why won't it come out? It's like a hoop with a ball on it. It's got a special name. Can't remember. Captive bead ring. And you have to get the bead off it in order to remove it. You've got an executive toy in your belly button. (laughs) Basically. um, But it's all right because I found a pair of rusty pliers this morning and uh, it's gone. I was going to say, Jen, I've got a miniature hacksaw if you want it. I I actually thought it might come to that because obviously I can't go to like a piercing place. They're probably all shut anyway, but if there was one open, it would probably be ill-advised for me to bowl in there and say, hey, can you deal with this, please? Yeah, rusty pliers sounds like a really bad sex move. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> Later on, Abortion Support Network's Mara Clark tells me about what's happening to women needing to access abortion in the time of coronavirus. Long-time home editor Hazel Davis gives us some tips for coping now that schools have been shut. Christ, that's a thing I never expected to say. I think you should start making a list, mate. It's just going to get longer. (laughs) Katya Jezzard Priro of Lighthearts UK shares some tips on dealing with anxiety. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I talk to journalist Carrie Dunn about what the abrupt end to the football season means for next year's Women's Euros. And in Dunleavy Does Disaster, we watch Avalanche. Crossroads meets Ski Sunday. (laughs) Since watching it, I've started answering the phone like this. Hello? Yes? What? (laughs) (laughs) But first, trolley trolls, pregnancy do's and don'ts, and reports on an ongoing scandal. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we stroke our beards at the week's events. And I reckon, give it a few more days, I will be able to do that quite literally. <laughs> we need to work on some sort of Skype extension that means we can all stroke your beard. <laughs> yeah. As Mickey shared in a much-liked tweet last week, this situation is, to varying degrees, taxing for all of us. But we can only control the things that we can control. And that, my friends, includes our behaviour online. So let's talk panic buying and an increasingly worrying trend, on Twitter at least, for the public shaming of it. I might as well start by saying that videos made by key workers unable to get any bread, fruit or milk have certainly served their purpose. And despite a bit of a balls up at the tills at supermarkets on Sunday, the major grocery retailers have responded to calls to ring fence products for NHS staff, pensioners and pregnant women swiftly but many shelves are still empty. So if you're posting images of said shelves and asking why it's happening, let me posit this theory. You're why it's happening. It's called panic buying for a reason. People are scared, and photos making Tesco's look like the last days of the Soviet Union are making it worse. I saw a Vox Pop on the BBC a few days ago in which an elderly woman was asked how she got on at pensioner hour in Sainsbury's. She was carrying 32 toilet rolls. 
Why? Because she'd seen there was a shortage and she was buying them in case several of her neighbours, who are also elderly, needed them. That is the very definition of panic buying. But it's certainly not selfish. If anything, it's exactly what she's been told to do, to look out for those around her. Mm-hmm. The selfish people, I venture to say, are the people who put the fear of God into her by posting photos of empty shelves and then some rant about how everyone is a prick in order to get likes on social media. Yep. That moral superiority has now spilled out into something else, something I'm going to call trolley shaming. In fact, I've seen calls to remove trolleys altogether, to which I'd say, who's shopping for your mum, dickhead? At the weekend, Twitter was full of photographs of queues of people with bulging trolleys of food. While there's certainly clear breaches of social distancing there, which is another question we're going to have to learn to answer in the coming months, people still need to feed their families. And yes, this is anecdotal, but at the minute, what isn't? Two people I know were tutted at or had public comments made at them for how much they were buying at a supermarket this weekend. One of them was shopping for eight people, one of them was shopping for six, and to make a donation to a food bank. Both of them would ordinarily have had their food delivered, but had gone to the store so as not to take up a delivery slot a vulnerable person may have needed. And, as another friend of mine pointed out at the weekend, she now has four extra mouths to feed at lunchtime because everyone is at home. If you're wondering why bread sales have gone through the roof, maybe ask yourself what's happened to the sale of M&S sandwiches at lunchtime. This public judgment has to stop, not least if we want people to help each other out. They have to be able to buy more stuff than they ordinarily would without fear of judgment. If we want people to stay inside as much as possible, we can't then expect them to switch to a daily shop. So next time you see someone with a bulging trolley, think, look how many people they're shopping for. Or maybe just mind your own fucking business. Mm-hmm. It was kind of funny at first, but it's, yeah, it's not funny anymore. Can I just add, if there isn't stuff on the shelves, which, you know, is a thing that is still happening, then it isn't the shop workers' fault. My sister yes. works at Aldi and has been in tears because she keeps being yelled at by people who want stuff that isn't on the shelves and can't be put on the shelves. She's worked her arse off. She is emotionally, mentally and physically drained. And now, this morning, she got sent home from work with a cough and a temperature. And you can't social distance when you're one of these key workers. That's the thing, right? If, you're, if you work in the NHS, when you sign up, there is a degree of risk to you, obviously, at all times that... You may get poorly because of things that are going around and and whatnot. Obviously, you probably don't really anticipate this is going to happen because who does? If you work in a fucking supermarket for minimum wage, do you know what I mean? You are like actually risking your health Mm. to be there and do that job. And it is an essential job, as we have all discovered in the last week or so. What the fuck are you doing if you're shouting at someone who works in a supermarket at the moment? It's it's insane. Uh, I agree. Thanks. There was a twist in the coronavirus tale for pregnant women last week after they were suddenly added to the government's high-risk category and asked to enforce social distancing measures. In a brand new development, having previously and repeatedly been told they were at no higher risk of contracting the virus or facing severe health problems as a result of doing so. So why the sudden turnaround? Had the evidence changed? Well, no. Chief Medical Advisor Professor Chris Whitty, who I find like a really comforting face to look at, by the way, 
despite what he's saying. Anyway, um, he said last week... Have you got him... Have you printed him out as a poster for your bedroom wall? Not yet, but give me time. We've got 11 weeks to play with, guys. Uh, He said last week that while infections and pregnancy are not a good combination in general, the step was a precautionary one, owing to the still massive gaps in information about the virus. The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists also advised pregnant women there is currently no new evidence to suggest that pregnant women are at greater risk of coronavirus than other healthy individuals, or that they can pass the infection to their baby while pregnant. However, despite echoing the government's calls for pregnant women to limit social contact, a spokesperson for the organisation added, it is important to note these special measures for pregnant women do not mean self-isolation unless they're showing symptoms. Pregnant women are still able to do things that are necessary in daily life, such as taking their children to nursery or school if needed. It's very important that pregnant women continue to attend antenatal appointments, which are essential to ensure her and her baby's well-being. So that's quite clear, isn't it? It's almost <laughs> as clear as go outside and exercise, but also just could you stay in your home? So while official messages are perhaps not as crystal as they could be, the growing body of evidence couldn't be more so. Looking at the increasing number of cases here, the current situation in other countries such as Italy, and listening to the testaments of NHS workers which are now sort of doing the rounds on social media, it's pretty fucking obvious that now is not the time to be visiting a farmer's market with every other person in East London. Oh. <laughs> it's a universal sigh. Yeah. I know, I feel bad now. I feel I feel bad for depressing you, but we were already all quite depressed, weren't we? So, you know. Just another brick in the wall. Oh, Mick. You've <laughs> met, you've, um, but you've got a tip, I think, maybe, for other pregnant women, Jen, because you've made a, a, a WhatsApp group with some other pregnant women. Which is, I have. Which is a thing that could help people, right? Yeah, so I've become sort of antenatally homeless, as it were, because... Hang on, is, is Jen pregnant? <laughs> I haven't mentioned it before now, have I? I don't think. That Fuck hasn't seemed hell. a good time. First there was Trump's impeachment, <laughs> then, then there was Christmas, now there's this. <laughs> what I'm doing is, because I, yeah, so like classes have been cancelled and things like that. So I have started a WhatsApp group with a kind of crack commando unit, if you will, of other pregnant women all friends of friends, none of whom I know personally, one of whom is, in fact, Hannah's friend. And, yeah, just sort of reaching out to other people and, yeah, so we can all kind of have little chats about how shit it is being pregnant in the midst of coronavirus and also hopefully having some people to chat to when our babies are born. Excellent plan. Well done. Thanks. So I'm going to move away from coronavirus because amid the corona chaos, an independent report on the Windrush scandal got somewhat lost. The Windrush Lessons Learned Review, authored by Inspector of Constabulary Wendy Williams and published on March the 19th, is, to borrow Labour MP David Lammy's phrase, a brutal indictment of the Home Office, concluding that the department demonstrated institutional ignorance and thoughtlessness towards the issue of race, and that its attitude towards race issues and the history of the Windrush generation is consistent with some elements of the definition of institutional racism. A quick recap on Windrush. 160 people, mostly of Caribbean descent, were wrongly detained or deported in what we now know as the Windrush scandal. 
Up to 8,000 people have been entangled in the scandal in other ways, including being separated from their families, losing their jobs, homes and identity, and being deprived of services such as NHS care. And it's far from over. People are still homeless, facing unemployment and fighting deportation. The inquiry prompted an official apology from Home Secretary and serial smirker Priti Patel, which, if it wasn't for this pesky pandemic, would surely have made front-page news. The take-home message from the report was clear. Tell the stories of the Empire, of the Windrush generation and of their legacy. Learn from them and prevent this sort of disgrace from happening again. How? William said the department must change its culture to recognise that migration and wider Home Office policy is about people and whatever its objective should be rooted in humanity. And it's clear that humanity finds it very hard to thrive in a hostile environment. Agreed. Um, Yeah. Bloody hell. Does anyone fancy some good news? Oh, yes, please. Okay. So, do you remember... I don't know, it feels like a lifetime ago now, but not that long ago when we spoke to Alison May from the Romantic Novelists Association. Yes, I do. It was an absolute treat. And she said that she thought Old Source was the next trend in romantic (laughs) fiction, causing Hannah to utter the immortal line, age brings its own peril. (laughs) See, even when we're not doing Dunleavy Does Disaster, she's she's sort of forecasting future events. (laughs) (laughs) Well... We've seen what I'm going to describe as, in the words of our Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, unprecedented peril for our olds in the last week. But over 50's dating website, Lisa50, is here for them. David Mins. Yay! (laughs) I'm just still reeling from the name Lisa50. What? I know. I think it's like Lisa50. Do you know what I mean? Like, as in... Oh, like there should be a comma in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it means. I think, David... I think he should rename it Old Source. <laughs> Why isn't it called David 50 if he's the founder? I don't know. He'd have to change his name. He'd I have don't to know change how the name every year, though, wouldn't he? <laughs> Good point. Good point. At least if Lisa isn't real. Anyway, we digress. David Mins, founder of the website, last week turned off payments and gave free access to the site for all over 50s during these dark, lonely hours of self-isolation. Mins said he wants to provide a platform where users can chat, make friends and boost their morale, adding, In the past 48 hours, I've seen mature neighbours chatting to their grown children through a closed window. And listened to... The R was mine, by the way, not his. And listened to numerous radio (laughs) interviews with people alone. Self-isolation could last many months and opening up our dating platform for free could really help singles in isolation. It would be wonderful when this is all over that new friendships are born and even new relationships. So, Kath, if you're listening, I look forward to meeting my new dad in 11 weeks' time. (laughs) I too have some good news. What's that? Oh, we got a note through our letterbox from a freshly formed community group called Nun Head Knocks, which is connecting people in need of assistance due to the COVID-19 outbreak. It is entirely volunteer-led, and I'm proud to have signed up to help my neighbours. The excellent news is we are not alone. Around the UK, somewhere in the region of 250 community groups have been set up to help those suffering from coronavirus or in self-isolation. Hannah, do you fancy joining in the good news bonanza? I do! And while it's a rare day indeed that you'll catch me saying this, but let's hear it for the alcohol manufacturers. Yay! Yay. 
At least three firms, all Scottish, have switched their manufacturing to produce hand sanitizer. Brewdog announced the move on Instagram last week following similar announcements by gin distillers Leith Gin, which, as the name suggests, is based in Leith, and Verdant Spirits, which is based in Dundee. All of these announcements predated the closure of UK pubs, so appear to be genuinely publicly spirited. Get it? Hey, uh, there she is. Well done, those firms. If it wasn't against the rules, I'd shake you by the hand. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when things that were already fucking awful look to get much, much worse thanks to coronavirus. Okay, I mean, that could that could be about pretty much anything. But there are a lot of people, ourselves included, shouting, what's so difficult about sitting on your sofa watching Netflix? Just stay at home, for Christ's sake. And I'm not arguing with that. But it is worth pointing out that for many people, predominantly women and children, home is the least safe place for them to be. It's no news to any of our regular listeners that, according to the World Health Organization, one in three women around the world experience physical or sexual violence, mostly from an intimate partner, and two women are murdered every week by a partner or former partner. What's more, sex-based violence tends to increase during humanitarian emergencies and conflicts, and given a huge part of domestic violence is control and isolation, COVID-19 is proving a boon for abusers. Reports from China suggest the coronavirus has already caused a significant spike in domestic violence, with local police stations seeing a threefold increase in cases reported in February compared with the previous year. Over in America, a domestic violence hotline in Portland, Oregon, says calls doubled last week. Here in the UK, domestic violence professionals are not on the government's list of key workers, which will affect the safe, effective running of life-saving refuge services. We're planning to chat to people on the front line about what's happening and how we can help. But in the meantime, Women's Aid said, self-isolation is likely to shut down routes to support and safety for women who may face even greater barriers to finding time away from the perpetrator to seek help. This is likely to be a challenging time for refuge services who continue to face a funding crisis and severe levels of demand for their help. Please consider supporting your local Women's Aid service with a donation. Absolutely, I'm seconding that. And the free mm. phone 24-hour National Domestic Abuse Helpline is 0808 2000 I'm nodding enthusiastically, but um, that doesn't come across on, on, on a podcast, does it? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> 100%. Do you think when we come out of isolation, we'll have finally worked out that people can't see us? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Jen here. We are all over that social media, innit? If you want to converse with us via the digital world, you can do so. We're on Twitter, at Standard Issue UK, and individually, at Mixter Noonan, at That Dunleavy, and at Inspira Jen. And it should be perfectly obvious which one is which. <laughs> We're Standard Issue magazine on Facebook, and you can also find us on Instagram, because we are down with the kids, at Standard Issue Podcast. Come and have a look at the pictures we post. Surprisingly, not really that many of cats. I am joined on the phone by the indomitable Mara Clark, founder of the Abortion Support Network. Mara, hello. Hello. How are you? Yeah, keeping on, keeping on. What about you? You know, it's business as usual here at Abortion Support Network Towers. We've always talked about the obstacles facing clients and service users and women and pregnant people who live in countries with bad abortion law. And coronavirus is yet another obstacle. 
Yep. So abortion in the time of coronavirus. What is the situation? <laughs> you read our newsletter. I did read your um, newsletter. <laughs> we currently provide service to people in Ireland, Northern Ireland, the Isle of Man, Malta, Gibraltar and Poland. And we've been noticing, I mean, I cannot believe it's only Thursday because I feel like it's been like six months since Friday. Yeah, time has stopped um, to have any meaning. Yeah. So initially, um, the, the first the first thing to go was Poland because they canceled all planes and trains. And then two days later, canceled all buses. Mm-hmm. If you want to leave Poland to get an abortion, and in, in Poland, abortion is virtually impossible to get under any circumstance. It's technically legal in cases of rape and catastrophic fetal abnormality, but there's almost no one to provide abortion in the case of fetal indication. Very few doctors are willing to. And uh, if you want an abortion in case of rape or incest, you need a certificate from the prosecutors. Oh, wow. uh, and we all know, oh yeah, we all know how great rape is at being prosecuted but what was the rapist wearing um (laughs) (laughs) i digress Um, so yeah so basically if somebody in poland wants to have an abortion their first option is to order medical abortion pills from the internet and thankfully there are reputable providers of those pills but if they are more than 12 weeks into the pregnancy, in a lot of cases, it's surgical abortion or in-clinic abortion or nothing. So what we're looking at at the minute is women getting a lift to the border or if they have a car. OK, great. But we only have one client so far who has access to a car or the ability to rent a car. Wow. So they have to get to the border, walk across the border, take a train to Berlin Now, abortion in Germany only goes 14 weeks, and so we're talking about people who then have to go from Berlin either to the UK for as long as flights still come to the UK or to the Netherlands. But the Netherlands has just announced that starting in a few days, they will only take EU and UK residents. So we had somebody in the Republic of Ireland who was from a non-EU country who needed an abortion, and... Thank God, because she was up against the legal limit in the Netherlands to get an abortion. And I should mention that this woman was also a refugee and got pregnant in a very not nice way and has a lot of other issues and obstacles in her life. We literally got her in before they did that. But she was still stopped by the border guards at Schiphol Airport. As if it wasn't stressful enough. Yeah. Let me think what else. Okay. And right now... We don't know, like, it could change again any day. Malta announced that as of Saturday, this coming Saturday, they will no longer allow inbound flights. So that means if anybody in Malta needs an abortion and can't access medical abortion pills, uh, they could, I guess, go to another country but then have to stay there. Also, in Poland, once you leave, when you come back, you have to self-isolate for 14 days. And there's all these other obstacles, like who's going to watch your children while everybody's isolating, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and just the regular, the regular things of clinics are just like everybody else in that people are going to start calling in sick. There's going to be limited capacity. This could change at any moment. So all I can say, Mickey, is we are predicting a baby boom in right. December. <laughs> right. okay. uh, so I really hope people are stockpiling condoms the same way they're stockpiling toilet, toilet paper. 
but we're going we're gonna to have a whole class of children that we can call the coronials. <laughs> so what exactly is abortion support network having to do to help these women with this brand new obstacle? I mean, in fairness, I can't believe you've not prepared for this. <laughs> I mean, here I thought that the Icelandic volcano was going to be <laughs> our, our, our most creative problem-solving exercise. But no... But no, now we have a worldwide pandemic. All we can do is literally all we can do. So every day, whoever gets in touch with us, we are trying to find them the quickest way to get from point A to point B. And then also in a lot of cases, we're making sure that people know that they can access pills from the internet, which are on the World Health Organization's essential medicines list. And who knows, maybe all of this will encourage our government to allow for early medical abortion to be done virtually anyway. Yeah. Like there's literally no reason why you couldn't have a Skype with your doctor and then have these pills posted to you Mm -hmm. as opposed to going to a website. And, you know, currently in England, because abortion hasn't been decriminalized, if you can't get to your local clinic and you decide to order these pills on the Internet, you could get arrested. You know, providing there's any police left, we have. Sorry, we have I realise that, like, obviously the listeners can't see my face, but it's one of pure exasperation and infuriation. Ah. <laughs> yeah, so basically all we can do is continue to share information. When we opened to Poland, we did so with five other organisations in four countries as part of the Abortion Without Borders project. We chose borders very carefully because obstacles and borders are very similar. So we're going to have a big call to talk about what can be done. And I will tell you that we are all very creative problem solvers. We have been known to get people across borders without passports. We've been known to get people who speak no English across several countries. This is going to be hard. We're going to have to say no to a lot of people. But anybody who we can help, we will help. You like the resistance, wartime resistance. (laughs) How's your French accent? Um, Listen very carefully. I shall say this only once. No, not an hello, hello fan. <laughs> Maybe it didn't uh, make it to New York, which is fair enough. <laughs> sorry. It's a, I just made a, a reference to a very niche British sitcom, which you clearly haven't seen, and that is fine. I'll send you a clip, what? Mara. I'll send you a clip. <laughs> which which sitcom is it? It's called Hello, Hello. Oh, I've heard of it. <laughs> but I've I've never seen a low a low. I've never seen only fools and horses. Well, um, I think now you've got like loads of time on your hands. You can remedy this, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, basically, I just want to make clear that it's very different than than in the past because now there is the ability to take tablets, and the tablets don't work for everybody, and the tablets don't work in every situation, but they do work in many situations, and they are very safe. And unfortunately, one of the major UK newspapers made the decision today to publish a super scaremongering story about how the coronavirus is going to turn people, uh, it's going to turn women to dangerous backstreet abortions and dangerous pills. And that was after we were all very clear about the fact that not under the National Health Service is not the same thing as dangerous. Yeah. So we're really, really lucky because... The thing is, is, there's this like, oh, well, abortion isn't really an essential service, except you know what? It is. Yeah, and absolutely. there's been a lot of reporting recently about how the reduced birth rate in the UK 
is because of economic insecurity. And that was before we were hit with a global pandemic. You know, having worked in public relations in New York during the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust and 9-11, like that was a baby recession compared to whatever's going to happen here. So I just want to say to everybody, practice safe sex. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, double Dutch is the way to go. That means use a hormonal and a barrier. <laughs> and if for whatever reason you find yourself with an unplanned pregnancy and there is no local abortion clinic where you can get a, an in-clinic legal abortion, you know, feel free to give us a call and we will see what we can do. I should also say we don't have abortion pills ourselves, but we know the reputable providers of early medical abortion pills. Currently, they're not sent to England, but as I say, I think we're all going to start being creative problem solvers, and maybe the UK government's going to allow people to have home use soon. Let's hope so. Mara, what can we do to help? (laughs) Keep calm and carry on. Be polite to all your service workers. You know, helping to not spread this would be great for everybody. Yes. Also, you know, we'll take your money if you have any. We are still a very small organization, three paid staff now, and about 120 volunteers. You know, almost all of our money does come from private individuals giving us a fiver here and a tenner there. So if you want to spare some dosh, you can, but mostly just everybody be safe right now. And where can we find you if we've got some quids that we want to throw you away? www.asn.org.uk. And if you want, you can even put stroke donate and that'll get you right to our donation page. Amazing. Mara, thank you so much for chatting to me. Pleasure. Thanks for calling. My name's Hazel Davis. I'm a freelance writer and home educator living in West Yorkshire with my two daughters and my partner. So we're all home educators now. Many of you will be against your will, I imagine, or maybe some of you have been considering it anyway, but would have liked a little bit more warning. I chose this way of life around six years ago, and along with my partner, we home educate our eight and seven-year-old daughters. And without sounding like a Pollyanna twat, we really love it. Though granted, we'd love it a little bit more at the moment if we had lost most of our income. Hey-ho! I've got some top tips to help you get through this difficult period. They're not going to be education tips because you can get that from school. There are loads and loads of websites online with downloadable worksheets and schemes of work. And there's there's lots of advice out there. This advice is emotional and psychological and just basically how not to kill each other. And this was something that we came to. We kind of got here eventually. We started our home education journey thinking, this is going to be brilliant. This is going to be great. Here's our timetables. Here's what we do. And then after a while, we thought, oh, this we're going to need to get into a kind of emotional groove. And we really have. And you will have to. And it's going to be hard, but you'll get there. So number one, you're going to have to relax about the mess. If you are a neat freak, then you probably are going to have to get over that. I really, really love home edding and I love having our children around, but our house is a constant shit tip. It's not what I would choose. If I, my children were out every day and I was out every day, then I'd probably have a relatively clean house. We haven't got a clean house. So you've either got the choice to hoover 43 times a day or walk through with your eyes closed and deal with it at the end of the day or let somebody else deal with it. Introduce a tidying regime by all means, but life is probably too short. My partner does most of the home editing while I conveniently work in the garden in my tidy garden office. But this also means dealing with the fact that if I come into the kitchen, I'll see that he's prioritised the learning over the tidying. It's fair enough and I admire this in him, but it doesn't stop me wanting to sweep my hands across the table and set fire to the kitchen. You're just going to have to chill out and remember that one day your house will be clean again. 
Number two, kids need space. I need space, you need space, but your children need space, okay? It's your house, yes, but they share it with you. If you're lucky enough to have a garden, remember that they they need to be in the house sometimes as well, rather than you poking them outside at the earliest opportunity. You want them to go out and play on the swing. Why don't you go out and play on the swing sometimes, okay? Let the kids hang out in the lounge. Let the kids watch the telly. You be the one that goes and jumps on the trampoline if you've got one. Oh, God, I really wish I had a trampoline. Just remember that this is everybody's house, okay? They're not sharing your space. You are sharing their space. This kind of uh, helps you rethink how you live. It's not your kitchen. It's their kitchen, okay? The walls are their walls as well as your walls. So kind of rethink how how you all live around each other. It's, it's hard, but you'll get there. Music. You really don't have to start listening to George Ezra just because your kids are at home. Introduce them to your music. The complete back catalogue of the Pogues. The best thing about home edding is that your kids are essentially a captive audience. We drove to Cleethorpes and back the other day and force-fed them Ricky Nelson and Kenny Rogers the whole day. They loved it and they'll be better for it and your sanity will be saved. Number four, back to music again, but it saves us. Play a duet. I know we all haven't got violins and guitars and euphoniums in our house, but there's things you can do. There's online choirs, there's online tutorials. Get ukuleles. I'm pretty sure you can still get a ukulele in the post. It'll be the best thing you ever do. Playing a duet with your children or trio, depending on how many kids you've got, playing a duet with your family is one of the most rewarding things you can possibly do. It sounds really smug and it sounds really wholesome, but it's actually fucking amazing. Learning a tune, learning a harmony, playing it together is so good for mental well-being. I can't tell you. So give it a go, even if it's hilarious, even if you're all awful. It's an absolutely riotous thing to do. Do it. Number five. Talk to your children. I know, again, this sounds really smug, but if your kids are out of school all day, they come in really knackered, go up to the rooms, do the homework, have a bath, go to bed. Chances are you don't talk to them that much. Maybe you do, but if you don't, take this opportunity to really have a chat with them. One of the, my absolute favourite things about home edging is that I get to listen to my children's absolutely nuts opinions on things in a way that maybe they wouldn't have the chance to have at school. My eight-year-old's sudden realisation is that, wait, if America is founded on immigrants and Donald Trump is racist, how does that work? And my seven-year-old's constant punning, they keep me going. It's like living with Bill and Ted and it's absolutely brilliant. You really need to embrace this, even if sometimes it makes you want to stick your head in the water butt and drown it out. You'll really miss it when they go back to school. And they will go back to school. Hello, I am joined on the phone by Katja Jezard Puiro, founder of Lighthearts UK, mental health campaigner and mindfulness instructor. Katja, hello. Hello, Mickey. How are you doing? Help. (laughs) (laughs) We can do that. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to help. We seem to be, quite understandably, with the coronavirus, in the midst of global panic. Yeah. Luckily, because I'm a mindfulness instructor, I've got a few little tips and help and guidelines on my side that kind of helps me through. I think the world needs a little bit of mindfulness. Absolutely. We're in strange and very anxious times, and a lot of people are struggling. Have you found that more people are coming to you asking for advice? Yeah, absolutely. Normally I see people one-to-one and I suddenly had to develop online mindfulness classes, which I didn't used to do before because what I like to do is be able to look people straight in the eyes and see their body language and things like that. And so it's challenging for me as well because I'm having to work in a different way. But this is how we have to adapt as a species. We're going to have to adapt. 
in a way, it's good because I get to see more people because online is a little bit of a quicker way. So, yeah, I'm definitely having a little bit of a surge of people using my free mental health course, people reading my blog articles, people asking for help uh, for online classes. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting time. I think a lot of the people that I've seen struggling are quite au fait with anxiety and have obviously suffered from anxiety before for various reasons. But there are some people who are quite new to anxiety and I wondered if there were ways that you could explain of how people might go about recognising it for what it is. There's a lot of people now yeah, suddenly going, oh, this is a new feeling. Mm. This is not what I'm used to feeling. And one of the big reasons is, is because... Us as humans, we love to be in control of things. And most of the time we think that we're in control of our (laughs) lives. So that means that we have our little routines and we have our structures and we have our likes and we have our dislikes and this kind of thing. And suddenly, when you have something like this, everything is taken out of our hands. Mm -hmm. No longer anyone is in control. And we look up to people and we suddenly think, oh, my gosh, My GP isn't in control and the government isn't in control. And this is something that, as human beings, we find extremely distressing. But the wonderful thing is when you suddenly realize, and this is a key thing in mindfulness, when you suddenly realize that nothing is in your control, nothing in the world is in your control except for your thoughts, it becomes incredibly freeing. We, as human beings, try and grasp everything very tightly. We think that this is our way of living. And then when this, something like this happens, we can suddenly go, oh, okay, then I'm just going to have to go with the flow. And what will happen is people will suddenly start to adapt and live in a more fluid manner because we're, we're forced into it. As long as we can try and, you know, think, okay, this is what has to happen and we have to go with it instead of fighting against it, it becomes a little bit easier. I'll give you an example. As I mentioned to you before in our email exchange, I have chronic pulmonary disease, Mm -hmm. which means I'm in one of the at-risk categories. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest, about a week ago, I had a little bit of a freak out. I think that's fair enough. (laughs) Exactly, because I thought I have children of school age who are going into school. I have clients coming into my home. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? And then I started reading too much stuff online about experts being speculative about what's going to happen. And I I quite rightly thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be one of the people that dies, Mm -hmm. or at least are going to be probably in hospital in a ventilator. I had that normal reaction of, oh, my God, I don't want to die. And then I had a sudden moment of clarity because with mindfulness, what happens is you say, at this present moment, I'm okay. In this present moment, I'm breathing. I'm alive. I don't have any symptoms. My children are okay. My husband, who normally works in France, luckily he got back home. He's here. My elderly relatives, they're okay. My friends seem to be okay. Okay. So at this moment, at this present moment, and that's all I can live in, I'm okay. 
And then I suddenly relaxed because that's the only way you can live. And especially in a crisis situation, you can only live moment to moment because we don't know our future and we can no longer go back to the way we lived before. Everything has changed. I think everyone listening will agree that that is a logical response. But of course, when we're panicking, that isn't how our fizzy brain accesses information, right? Right. So how do we calm this fucker down? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's various ways of doing it. In our societies, where we're very used to wanting to have everything at the snap of a finger. Take a pill to be happy or we take a pill to be slim or this kind of thing. Getting to the moment where you can live moment to moment without worrying too much about your future or hankering after your past takes a huge amount of effort. Mm -hmm. The lovely thing is, is that the things that you can do to get there are extremely simple and they seem crazily simple. You just kind of think, really, is that all it is? These are the things that if you do methodically day after day, they become part of your everyday life so that it becomes your default method of living and the way your neural pathways work change. So if you do these things constantly, then you'll get there. And my little kind of weird hope for the world is that because everyone will be kind of stuck inside, that everyone will turn to these type of methods and we'll all come out the other side a little bit more mindful because that's all we have. We don't have anything else at the moment. So we've got a bit of time to invest in our mental health. Yeah, and I would so, if you're doing anything, this is what I would recommend because it can bring so much peace in a difficult situation like this. I am eternally grateful for the things that I've learned. So if you're in the moment and you're feeling like you're crushed by anxiety or your brain is so fizzy that you can't get a handle on it, or you're just worried that you are going to keep having these moments of anxiety, what are your top five tips to calm a head full of bees? Please catch it. Okay. Well, the first thing is breathing. Everyone mentions this in terms of meditation and things like this, but breathing exercises is the absolute key. And not only a breathing exercise is wonderful for your brain, but they also strengthen your lungs, which, uh, because coronavirus is a respiratory disease, this is really important. And I can honestly say that having done day-after-day breathing exercises, this has actually strengthened my lungs to the point that my symptoms have become, I've probably halved. Oh, that's amazing. Um, Yeah. Not only is it great for our bodies, but this is fantastic for our brain. Now, breathing exercises, if you do certain breathing exercises, and this is a really easy thing to put in your head, is that basically if you exhale longer than you inhale, it activates a nerve called the vagus nerve. And that nerve runs from your stomach through your diaphragm up to your brain. So it runs through all the big major organs of your body. And what it does is that When you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, it sends a message to your brain to relax. I'm not sure how it works, and I'm not an expert in it, but this is scientifically proved. The most easy breathing exercise that I do with my clients is the 446 method of breathing. So you breathe in for four counts, you hold for four counts, 
and then you breathe out for six counts and then you start again. So if you've got breathing difficulties, sometimes you'll have to shorten those counts, Mm -hmm. which is fine. But as long as you're breathing out for longer than you're breathing in, you're activating the vagus nerve that tells your brain to relax. And if you do that for a few rounds, you immediately start to calm. It's one that I use every single day. I use it in traffic. (laughs) I use it. I use it when I'm speaking to someone who is irritating me somewhat. Are you doing it right now? (laughs) (laughs) Funnily enough, no. You're right. You're right. But it's a very simple thing. You think, how can that work? But it does. The next thing I would say is try and have like a digital detox. So that means not going online Mm -hmm. and reading articles. The the worst thing at the moment is the the speculative articles. Because what it does, it sends us to a place where we don't know what's going to happen, but they seem to come out with the worst case scenarios. Yeah. And when you're suffering from anxiety, that just ramps it up hugely. Constantly looking at articles about what could happen, what might happen. And that's why people go into this panic mode of buying shitloads of toilet rolls and all of that kind of thing. It sends people into that panic mode because they've heard the worst case scenario. For people who are anxious, just stop looking at the news. Stop listening to the radio. Listen to lovely podcasts. Read lovely books, but please get off the internet. Liz, my colleague, who is on the front line at the moment, she's a senior psychiatric nurse. She's in charge of a, a care team who specialise in geriatric health. What's happening at the moment, bless her, is she's finding that people are misinterpreting the news Mm -hmm. and they are getting severely anxious and they are having, you know, severe mental health issues. And she's on the front line at the moment trying to deal with that. And she's trying to tell everyone, please stop looking at the news because it's making it worse for you. So that comes straight from the senior psychiatric nurses. Thank you, Liz Axum, and uh, also all who sail in her because they are doing incredible work. It's it's astonishing. Yeah, she's amazing. I'm in awe of her. This is a little quote from her. First of all, it was just like a big ah. <laughs> that's what she wrote first because that's literally all she was feeling at that moment. She had to express that. The other thing she said is, "This is how." The mental health teams are good at it. She said, we are here. We are trying to support people by phone. We are using Skype for therapy. We are trying our best in unprecedented times. It's tough. It is tough. tough. Give Um, me another tip for soothing those anxious brains. You've given us two absolute corkers. The next one I would, would definitely recommend is the mindful body scan. There's lots of them online. I have in my free mental health course to go on YouTube get yourself a mindful body scan because what that does is that you're going through every single bit of your body and you're relaxing every single bit of your body and you're being guided through it to relax your body and when you relax your body then your mind then relaxes it's about deep breathing and being present and conscious of each little bit of your body I would definitely say gratitude practice So that is every day writing down, because they've actually scientifically proved that if you write it down as opposed to just say it in your head, 
you actually become significantly happier by doing it. You write down all the amazing, grateful things that you are happy for that day. And the thing is, with a crisis like this, there are extraordinary moments of loveliness coming out. Mm -hmm. And we need to cling on to those moments. So it can just literally be, for me, it's always, I'm grateful, I'm breathing, I have oxygen in my lungs and it's happening. I'm lucky, I have a house that is secure, and I'm lucky because I get on with my family because I know there's families that don't get on and this is going to be a challenge for them. So these kind of things, you just make a big old list of all the things that you're happy with, that you're grateful for that day, and include things that have happened in the day as well. Like you bumped into this person, you know, well, try not to bump into Don't be bumping into people, no. (laughs) No bumping, no bumping. Uh, You virtually, virtually bumped into someone. Yeah, like you have conversations, oh my God, I caught up with this person. So it's about creating that kind of positive thing, and it does seem a bit, you know, I'm being a bit you know, Mary Poppins and Pollyanna about it all. But these are tiny little things that you can do to help yourself. The other thing is write your stuff when you're worried down in the diary because getting it out of your brain and onto paper means that you've got some kind of relief because very often we're not going to want to burden everyone with our worries all the time because it will become very heavy very quickly. Yeah being able to have people that you trust that you can talk to who are not going to get angry with you if you say I'm worried about this they're not going to snap at you that's so good if you have those people talk to those people because that's so important but if you don't have those people write it down and get it out of yourself that way one fantastic free resource as well as my free 10-week mental health course which is online Anyone can access, there's no signing up to do it. It's literally, you just go on the website, click on the link, and you're in. You can go to lighthearts-uk.com, scroll down to the free mental health course. It was developed with me and Liz, who's the senior psychiatric nurse. So there's free audios, tip sheets, videos, there's stuff about panic attacks, anxiety, brain chatter, fear. There's meditation, there's everything you need in one place. And then there's also a wonderful app, which is completely free, called Insight Timer. Insight Timer. Yeah. And so it's insighttimer.com. This is an app that is completely free and has thousands upon thousands upon thousands of meditations and lovely music and breathing exercises and talks about mindfulness and it's an incredible resource and I use this every single day I ask everyone I know to use it as well (laughs) it's incredible and it's completely free when I have tried meditation and various things like that to calm my brain because I can absolutely see the value in them my brain immediately Mm -hmm. takes that as an opportunity to fizz a little bit more is it like any other kind of exercise in that I just need to stick with it yeah that's all it is the thing is is that meditation is one of those things and I do it every day and every day my mind wanders but every day I bring it back 
I think with what's happening at the moment with coronavirus is that some of it is is sort of secondhand anxiety as in we're anxious not necessarily for ourselves but for others that are seriously affected or potentially seriously affected by what's happening but obviously we want to talk to those people and comfort them or sometimes with with older people inform them of what's going on or if you've got kids who are worried explain to them what's going on how do you do that without passing on your anxiety I think it's all about your tone of voice I think especially with older people, everyone's being a little bit hectoring towards them. Yeah, I've, um, I've because... told my mum off. She needed telling off. I know. And I've done the same with my mum. <laughs> and I suddenly realised, you know what? We have to be only responsible for what we can do. What other people do, we have to make them aware. So it would be great if you did this, this and this, because this will keep you safe. But if they refuse to do that then that's their choice and we can't get upset about it because then we just create anxiety for ourselves all i can do for my parents is just hope that they stay safe and at the moment they're fine so that's all i have there is nothing outside of that moment they're fine now they're doing what they can if my mum stays away from you know friendly dog walkers then she might be okay and stops going to the bank and actually opens an online bank account that might help man but you know what I mean <laughs> that kind of thing yeah <laughs> you can only go so far and then you just have to go we are all just responsible for our own actions and what other people do like buying the crazy toilet roll we have to just shrug our shoulders and go well hopefully I'm not going to be that person Okay, what I'm getting from this is that I need to unlock the cupboard and let my mum out. <laughs> well, you know, she knows the risk. <laughs> Does she? Um... <laughs> You've clearly not met Anne. Um... <laughs> Katya, Lighthearts UK is a cracking resource. We've spoken to you Brilliant Birds before. Thank you for coming and chatting to us again. Give us a quick reminder of that website, please. Yeah, so it's lighthearts-uk.com. I also have my YouTube channel, which is Lighthearts UK. And on there, you can find lots of meditations and mindfulness tips. Katya, thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been a pleasure and I'm going to try and be better at breathing. <laughs> thank you, Mickey. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined on the phone by sports journalist author of lots and lots of books including the pride of the, the lionesses, of lionesses yeah. and also researcher lots of strings to your bow carrie hello <laughs> thanks for joining us thank you for having me carrie so you are here to talk to us about football about well two things really first of all the coronavirus chaos what's going on in in not just women's football all of football all of sport I guess all of sport okay well nothing is going on in all of sport because there's pretty much no sport left um over the past two weeks uh, it's been like a big line of dominoes things have gradually gradually been knocked over because of the risks of transmitting coronavirus and at this point I think we've got just 
the World Championship snooker left in May, although Oof. the Crucible is now closed. So, you know, maybe that's not going to happen. And the Olympics, but I think there probably have to be uh, big question marks over that too. Yeah, we had a little spell where matches in football were being played behind closed doors. But even that, with the amount of travel that's involved and the amount of fans that still congregate outside stadiums, even though they can't get into them, that's been deemed too risky. So, yes, at the moment, we're looking at no football for uh, at least the next six weeks and possibly longer. The rugby season has finished. Um, the cricket season hasn't even started in England. and don't think it's going to start anytime soon. I think we'll probably be looking at just um, a T20 competition perhaps in the summer now. And, uh, yeah, it's all a, pretty much a, a big, vast, gaping chasm of nothingness. Well, that's a cheery note to start with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> bleak, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's fine. I understand it. It feels like quite a bleak time. So, obviously, there are you know there there are massive implications for for some of this. In particular, I am interested in. Although obviously this is not exclusively a football problem, but I think football is particularly interesting because obviously we're quite close to the end of the season, or we're sort of what we're three quarters of the way through the season so we're not Um, far enough to conclusively say these are fair outcomes to sort of end with apart from obviously Liverpool winning the Premier League that's pretty mm -hmm. conclusively done but if you're talking about promotion of other teams in the English Football League and the the women's leagues and if you're talking about relegation something I'm particularly interested in as a Charlton Athletic supporter it feels a bit unfair to decide now with nine games or whatever left to go, right, this is what we're going to do. So what are the other possibilities that people are sort of looking at at the moment? Yeah, I I don't think it will come to abandoning the season now. As you say, there's too much of the season left. There's too much at stake still and too much is still mathematically possible. There's too many different kind of combinations of things that could happen. So I don't think abandonment uh, is going to happen. So that might be good news for you. Or bad Um, news, who knows? I I think what is actually going to happen is what they're kind of saying that they're committed to, which is concluding the domestic season, however long that takes. And that is why um, this summer's men's European championships have been postponed to give that extra space to allow leagues to conclude. Um, there is usually kind of um, a cut-off point at which domestic leagues can't go past so as to leave the summer free, but that's been temporarily lifted uh, in these unique circumstances to allow it to you know, just resume when it can be resumed to get it, get it all finished and get it done fairly. But I do suspect they're going to want to get up and running quite soon. I mean, they've, they've said they're not going to do anything before the end of April, but I suspect after that, we still might be looking at a couple of behind-closed-doors fixtures as we start to get back into the football season, just because I think they're going to, get, want, going to want to get up and running quite quickly. They're not going to want too much of a delay because people are sitting around waiting for the conclusion to, um, to the season. And this matters a lot to a lot of people, and let's not um, disregard the financial aspect of well, it as of well, course, obviously. Yeah. It's a big money-making thing for a lot of people. There's a lot of TV subscriptions there. There's a lot of companies who have bought broadcast rights. So I think everyone is absolutely committed to finishing the season without abandoning it. 
talk about Liverpool for a minute. I have this theory that they are perennially the bridesmaids of English football. There have been like a few times where it really felt like they should have won the league. But something sort of, it, I don't know, it's, something's just gone wrong at the last minute or or they've kind of slid down the table suddenly after looking quite promising for a very long time. Now, they are going to win the league. I think we can say that quite safely. Mm. It's a bit of a shame to have to do it behind closed doors, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I don't think that players or managers will particularly want to do anything behind closed doors because, as you say, it's not ideal. And I was actually very interested when... I, I was actually covering some of the matches in the uh, Europa League before the the restrictions on playing came in and there were matches being played behind closed doors. A number of pundits, you know, former footballers, presenters, journalists, who were suddenly kind of going with the, without fans, football is just pointless, it's worthless, football is nothing. With that kind of line, was fascinating to me because fans groups have been campaigning saying this for a long time because fans have been ignored in so many decisions such as when matches will be televised such as fixture dates uh, as in ticket prices and fans have been ignored and I, I think this, this has been kind of a real revelation that actually it's not great for teams to play in front of empty stands and the importance of fans might be realised after all of this so yeah I suspect players and managers will be lobbying to have fans back in but obviously that's not going to be done until it's actually medically safe for that to happen mm. so I think it's kind of a, a fingers crossed for everything to to be reasonably back to normal quite soon so more more sort of attention paid to fans because we a lot of people are saying in a lot of respects you know this whole thing could really change society could change the way we do things so are we saying cheaper pies in stadiums now is that what we're going to see as a result of this we care about like fans absolutely <laughs> cheaper pies would be a good thing amongst many other things let's you say. wouldn't want a cheaper pie at the valley let me tell you fucking are, are they not good okay they don't um, look well, good some, maybe maybe better quality pies yeah. then perhaps we'll be happier to pay more for a better quality pie but um, yeah, yeah, ticket pricing, and that, that's been a huge thing for a long time. Um, not having everything on subscription TV if you want to watch a match. Yeah, there, there's so many things that have affected the way that fans have followed sport in kind of the past 20 years. And fans have been ignored you know, in favour of what TV companies want and, and you know, what sponsors want. And yeah, I think uh, people have realised that they've paid a lot of money for sports, but realize that actually these fans that you've ignored or tried to ignore for so long are actually a major part of what you wanted in the first place. On that sort of theme, I want to come on to something else that I suspect mm. there could be, well, it depends how you do it, but um, potentially light at the end of the tunnel. Obviously the men's Euros, as you say, have been postponed until next year, which is when also there are going to be the women's Euros, or certainly at the, this point in time, they are scheduled to take place next year. There's not really any reason to cancel the women's Euros but just because the men's are on at the same time or could be on at the same time. They're using different stadiums, etc., etc. There is a little bit of a clash over Wembley, I believe, but you know, mm -hmm. well, I'm sure there's a way around that. Could this see? the women's Euros and the men's Euros go on the same platform at the same time, like the Olympics, and see a sort of massive boom for the women's Euros, really. 
I think, I mean, that's certainly one thing that I've seen suggested. I mean, as you say, there would need to be a couple of um, tweakings of, uh, of, of scheduling. I think, practically speaking, I think it's all going to depend on what happens with the Olympics. Now, the Olympics for women's football is a much bigger deal than it is for men's football. Yeah. It's like one of the kind of big blue ribbon events in women's football. Winning it is a big deal. The USA have won it kind of multiple times. You've always got kind of the big international teams up there. So if the Olympics gets pushed back to next year, then you're probably not going to have the women's Euros in the same year. You might see that getting knocked back too. If the Olympics are not a couple of months down the road, maybe you would still. So I think that's why they haven't made any announcements on that yet. They were quite decisive about saying they were going to move the men's Euros to 12 months later and then call it, still call it Euro 2020. But um, they said that there'll be further information about what's happening with the women's Euros in due course. And I think they're sitting tight waiting to find out what is happening with the Olympics before they make any big decisions on that. So do you think there is a reasonable chance that the women end up effectively getting shafted <laughs> as well. Oh, always. That's always what happens. The <laughs> women's international football is always going to be treated uh, differently to the men's. And I don't think I would like to see it running at the same time because you would end up with a massive press pack following the men, end up with a couple of people following the women. And it, w- it, it wouldn't be fair because this is kind of one of the big... One of the big showcases for women's international football, I think I would like to see them have their own spotlight rather than have to share it with the men folk. I would just wonder if there's something in it that you would, what you would get is a bunch of people who maybe wouldn't have planned to watch it, who end up almost accidentally watching it and then go, oh, this is all right, actually. I might keep watching this. But then maybe you would get that in, a, in an empty summer, which would happen in twenty. 20- 22 because obviously the world cup is going to be in the winter of that year so is there's that a for definite? there that the women well, well well again we'll see what happens i think everything has massive question marks mm. over it at the moment but that would be kind of a possibility so again it, it, it's a wait and see i think I think if if anyone asks me, which they don't and they should, um, I would like to see the women have their, their own few months for their own tournament rather than having to um, having to share coverage. But yeah, I do take the point that that might bring additional attention to it. But you know, hopefully a, a good Olympic showing would yeah. do that as well. Also, uh, Phil Neville brings attention to it, but but for <laughs> but how grateful should we be for that? <laughs> question or is that just amusing it's i mean i think what are we doing why is he here what were we ever doing let's just crack on i personally think that if you were in men's football if you'd had a run of results as shit as his you'd be out the door although there is an argument that there's people are too fickle in the men's game and you do have to give people a chance to turn things around but i think if you apply different rules, then what you're basically saying to the women's game is we expect less from you. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in that uh, any manager with a run of results as poor as Phil Neville's have been would be having to answer some very serious questions, certainly. The fact that um, the FA have been consistent in this, they've said that he's there till the end of his contract, he's going to be 
know, leading Team GB, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are other advantages to having Phil Neville in post, I guess. Not in, and it's not because uh, of his coaching. It, the fact is, and you, this cannot be disputed, is that he has brought additional media attention. He's done what we were just talking about in terms of the men's game shedding a spotlight yeah. on the women's game. He's brought a lot of media attention over people who want who have followed his playing career and want to follow his coaching career. So I think that is an advantage. I mean, I'm not saying that it's swaying decision-making, but um, that has certainly uh, been a factor, I think, whether it's a conscious one or not. I, I haven't been convinced, certainly, by performances. I think if I could see... If I could see development, if I could see a trajectory of what the plan is, then I would be a bit more reassured about uh, his England side at the moment. But, but it hasn't been looking great. Obviously, he's been doing a lot of chopping and changing. The She Believes Cup, for example, uh, the tournament that was out in America, the 14-round robbing tournament, he was saying that he wanted to experiment with, with his sides, which is, you know, fine. You try some young players out. That's fantastic. But, you know, it's still a trophy that you could win. Um, England won it last year. Mm. They finished third this time round. And they didn't look great while finishing third. So, yeah, I think there there are a lot of question marks over Phil Neville's position at the moment. And it will be interesting to see when the season does resume and when we have a bit of clarity over when the Olympics are happening and when the Euros are happening, what he actually does, what squads he actually picks, and what style of football they actually play, whether it's a consistent system. I mean, what is, what's going on there? Because is there, I feel like I sound like a tabloid journalist now, but <laughs> is there something rotten in the camp, Carrie? Because if you look at, like, if you look at their performances as an England team, it's, it's not great, to be fair. Whereas the individual players just seem to play so much better in their domestic leagues. Yeah. So, if I'm casting my mind five, five, back five years to um, the Women's World Cup 2015 and the side that Mark Sampson was sending out. So, mm-hmm. this is kind of probably not too long after a lot of these players turned pro. So, the fitness wasn't as high as perhaps it was now. The football he sent his team out playing was not necessarily always the prettiest. They were quite often set up quite defensively, and he got results. And they seemed to understand their system. They understood their jobs. And sometimes you have to have a question mark around whether the England players that are going out there at the moment know what they're supposed to be doing, whether there is actually, you know, whether there must be a plan there, but I haven't managed to work it out yet. <laughs> Fails to crack the code. So Carrie, what what are you up to at the moment other than not enjoying the moratorium on sport? <laughs> um, I am mostly just sitting in my living room um, watching a lot of things on Netflix and, I can exclusively reveal, um, just started work on a new book. Ah. Um, so yes, so I am taking, uh, um, making the best use of my time uh, in social distancing by actually getting some work done. So I will be able to tell you more about this as and when <laughs> sport begins again. But uh, yeah, fingers crossed there'll be exciting news in the not too distant future. And where can we follow you on Twitter should we wish to follow <laughs> this progress? You can follow me on Twitter at Carrie Sparkle and on the Instagrams at Carrie Sparkle 123. Excellent. Carrie, thank you very much. Thank you.
Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster has had us running around snowscapes in our negligee this week? Oh my God, I had the best fucking time watching this. I don't know if 12 days of quarantine have helped that, but... Honestly, I actually sent you guys a spit take that I actually did, a photograph of my top covered in tea, a literal spit take where I'd gone, this film is ridiculous. 1978's Avalanche, which stars Rock Hudson, who's the colour of mahogany and dressed like the little one from The Big Bang Theory. Doesn't matter how cold it is, he's he's always going to wear that sports jacket. Robert Foster and... The back of Mia Farrow's head. Sterling work from the back of Mia Farrow's head. I do sometimes wonder why it's the back of her head because she appears to have the worst fringe ever. But then I'm thinking we'll all have that when we come out of our houses after three months, won't we? We'll all have self-cut fringes fringes that are like just... Did that look like something a mum had done? It looked a bit David Sauerbutt, to be honest. <laughs> Didn't it? It was incredible. I've got to say, though, when she was wearing a bathing cap, I was like, how the fuck is Mia Farrow looking so stunning in a bathing cap? And it's because she's got cheekbones she could eat your dinner off. I think she looked at this and she thought, this film's shit. I'm going to try and pitch it as being... Catherine Hepburn out of the Philadelphia story because that scene where he's standing on the edge of the swimming pool and she's swimming around in the swimming cap. Yeah. Like, that is really Philadelphia story if you've seen it. But obviously, this is pretty fucking far from the Philadelphia story. I'll tell you what happens. Please. At one point, I just went, everyone in this film is mad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I loved it so much. <laughs> right, so there's a new ski resort that's having a grand opening and as part of its grand opening, it's having some skiing and some skating events. And this ski resort has been built by Rock Hudson, who is kind of ruthless developer. He's obviously interested in getting back with his ex-wife, Mia Farrow. So he, oh sorry, ex-wife, <laughs> back of Mia Farrow's head. <laughs> so he's invited her to this grand opening in an attempt to woo her. And by woo her, that means grab her arms really aggressively and forcefully kiss her. And then not go to lunch with her several times because yeah. there's an event too important to miss. There is. There is. Thank God. I mean, if we're starting off on the list already, I've missed my first one, which is what the fuck is that font? Because I have never seen a film that's font look like Calibri. I mean, what was it? I like Calibri. And it was really small. They missed a trick not putting an exclamation mark on the end of the title as well. Yeah. Oh, this film is so bad. And I could talk about how bad it is, I probably, forever. And who knows, I might end up doing that uh, when the real internet goes off. No one will be listening. Hannah will just be (laughs) chatting away about Avalanche. Shot choices is the first thing I want to talk about because the shot choices in this are fucking mad. There's a scene at the start where Mia Farrow's in his office and half of the screen is taken up by the back of Mia Farrow's head. About two-thirds of what's remaining is the ceiling of the office, is all you can see. And just to be clear, it's just a white ceiling. It's not even like it's interestingly mosaic or something. And then right, right in the far distance, in the bottom left-hand corner, is Rock Hudson. It felt to me like watching Acorn Antiques, obviously, because it's got (laughs) such a shaky set and everything. Or that episode of Inside Number 9 that had the Krampus in it. Yeah, I think that's where um, Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton got the idea. I I need to know if they watched Avalanche. Yeah. But everything in this 
looks really far away, like it's a photo that my mum has taken where nobody's really in shot and everyone's sort of blurred. Oh, just talking about photos, can we just admire the joy that happened when Rock Hudson went, four years ago I saw this mountain, and then it just cuts to a photograph of a mountain. <laughs> the shot, the, oh, cutting, the cutting is so bad that there's a scene where someone is ice skating and the cuts are actually audible. You can hear, like someone's ice skating, and then you can hear, like that, where it goes over to the new scene. If we're talking about cuts between ice skating and something else, my personal favourite, and it is hard to, to pick when there was such a smorgasbord of uh, awful delights, was when she was concentrating that there's an ice skater who really needs to focus on her concentration because another ice skater being good puts her off. But she's focusing on her spin and it cuts from her spin to a plane about to crash. Her spin to a plane about yeah. to crash. And I'm like, is it going to crash on the ice rink? No, absolutely separate events, guys. It's all fine. <laughs> There's a brilliant bit where they all go to dinner. And you know when they have dinner scenes and everyone's around the table and obviously they focus in on two people that are talking. Everybody in the background essentially starts going rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. It's just supposed to be like a general hum, mm-hmm. right? Not in this. Everyone is at the same volume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so, so everyone's basically shouting to try and be heard by somebody else. There's a point at which they're sitting around the table where Mia Farrow for no reason just goes, No! there's a band playing and my god has any band ever needed a sound check they didn't even bother to sound check that band before they filmed it it's like there's feedback there's fuzz they're awful but then the minute everybody gets up and starts dancing the band disappears and everyone's just dancing with no music it's genuinely that destroyed me that scene of everyone jiving with the music on there's a bit during dinner as well where they're obviously trying to create this idea that this thing is impending so they keep cutting to outside but the shot is so you can't see anything basically if you've ever driven up the a1 at night in fog that's basically all you can see there's the sort of visibility there's no point in that scene at all listeners i pissed the first time that happened (laughs) (laughs) it was just so ridiculous it just cuts to like like, i don't know you know like don't walk run from the thing it's just that kind of like weird yeah, it's there's weird. A, there's a bit where Robert Foster, who is the Cassandra of this, he's a photographer that knows that, that they're pushing fate by building a hotel here. Anyway, so Robert Foster and Mia Farrow are standing by a window and it's snowing outside and you can actually see it coming in gusts like it's being thrust out of like a cannon. It's amazing. The I snow mean... is amazing. Also, the wind, because you can hear the wind howling. <laughs> but they're in a place with a lot of trees and not one branch is moving at all. <laughs> <laughs> and then Mia Farrow shuts the window and the level of the wind howl remains exactly the same. There's a number of side plots that are going on throughout all of this, most of which I cared very little about i didn't know what any of the characters were called except for the fact that we do get some sexy times between a skier who i don't really know who he is bruce, and a skater bruce. who i don't really care but they're not characters are they they're literally just people with names that's all they are they have some sexy times and that's this is the bit that made me spit my <laughs> cup of tea out because they they are like getting undressed at the bottom of the bed. Oh, no, it's awful. Oh, I can't. And they're having a conversation, which is so cringeworthy, as I wish you could see Jen's face, right? 
And what they're talking about, the conversation continues. So it leads you to believe that the next thing that happens is the next thing that happens. Is this making sense, right? And then suddenly, the next shot you see, they're both coming up, like, from the bottom (laughs) of the bed, right, to the top of the bed. And I thought... The only logical thing that's happened there is they've chose to the enter the bed by crawling <laughs> up onto the covers from the bottom. There'd be no other explanation for that shot next. And I, actually I mean, come on, don't you tea. always worm up the bed when you want sexy times? <laughs> always. And then I thought, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm one of these people that I got taught to do something differently and everybody gets into bed by crawling up down from... Because they're in a hotel as well. That's going to be the worst way to do it. You've got to pull all those sheets out. Yeah, I mean, but also the other point they proved is that everyone uses the dimmer switch with their foot. <laughs> Can you imagine embarking on some sexy times by crawling under the duvet at the wrong end of the bed and slowly wriggling up with the same... Like, there's nothing sexy about that, is there? But it's the equally amount of sexy that was given to one foot turning the dimmer switch so the light went off and then another <laughs> foot appearing and turning the dimmer switch back up. First to the top of the pillows gets to come first. <laughs> I don't know. Um, there's some, like you were saying about phone calls earlier, there's a lovely, lovely moment where Rock Hudson takes a phone call and basically that phone call is just him repeating everything back that the person said to them. And at one point he says, what do you mean your pilot won't fly in this? And then he gives them no time to answer and then he carries on talking. And it's just, oh, it's so ridiculous. Okay, so now we are 55 minutes in. But hang on, you've missed the incongruous tits. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Orange juice and tits, anyone? Who's she? Where did she come from? What the fuck was that about? Was that like, we've missed the opportunity to show the tits in the sex scenes, so we'll just do it now. She's his secretary, who he's clearly bonking. He's clearly bon- And I'm going to use bonking because it seems fitting for this Fair, film. Yeah. He's clearly bonking her, Susan. Uh, Susan, the cardboard cutout secretary uh, with a lovely rack. And he's Dina, I think, is the woman behind the bar who just goes, oh, hi, and tries to smooch him. And he's like, take it easy, Dina. I'm trying to woo back my wife um, <laughs> by being a real autocrat because women love that. Uh, yeah, Susan, he's had a bad time, so he's chilling out in his jacuzzi and Susan can sense his frustration. So she just appears, tits akimbo, with a glass of orange juice. <laughs> There's also a bit where there's a, a woman who discovers her boyfriend shag or whatever, because it's not explained. He's shagging someone else. Oh, and yeah. she literally screams like she's been murdered. And like she's like grabbed and slapped. It's really horrible. She, she takes throws yogurt co- on her. Yeah. He throws yogurt yeah. on her and then puts her outside the door. And tells like her to cat. go and, and basically tells her to go and kill herself. Like, yeah. Bruce is a dick and I'm glad he doesn't survive. But also the Tina Bruce storyline where she's just going to him, what was she? How do you rate last night? A seven? An eight? And I'm thinking she's going to go like a 12 or something now. A nine? It's just like a really shit maths lesson. (laughs) So anyway, we're now 55 minutes into this film and nothing of any substance has happened. Like, literally, I don't know who most of the characters are. I care about no one. I'm not invested in any plot line. There is one more. There's one more thing we need to get to. It leads to some peril. And that's when Mark Elliott, the broadcaster, just sees a random child and says, would you like to go skiing? And the kid goes, (laughs) all right. And they get on a lift. And then he goes, 
I'm Mark. What's your name? <laughs> just, takes, <laughs> just takes a seven-year-old up a mountain. <laughs> so, yeah, like I say, I'm not invested in anything. I don't give a shit. But here comes the avalanche. And, oh, my God. Hello. Terrible effects. I mean, I, I, I could talk for ages, but I've decided that my favourite effect is the one that happens early when they're hit on the chairlift by... The snow. Well, I say snow, polystyrene, shaving Blocks. foam. Who knows what it is they've thrown at them. There's Have a myriad, a, a myriad of textures going on there, but one of them is definitely polystyrene. Apparently that's what it was. It was little bits of plastic that they ripped up and that wasn't biodegradable and is still on the hill of the ski resort they used to film it. Nice. That's a, a perky little story. Um, so, yes, <laughs> this this avalanche rolls down the hill now. I have been led to believe by science that avalanches cause quite a lot of noise and quite a lot of trembling. But this one is like the silent killer. It's like coronavirus. People literally don't know it's happening. You get shots of people like reading a newspaper, essentially, as they get piled over by snow. Even people who have been clearly told to face in the direction that the snow is going to come up before they get polystyrene blocks hurled at them look surprised. <laughs> Even the ice skater is like pirouetting as it hits yeah. her. <laughs> we get some screaming cowardice where some people try to climb a fence and tear other people down and then they get hit by the inside of a bean bag. Um, there's a bit where they dynamite some snow where they're trying to break into get into the hotel to rescue his mother, who I will get to. Um, oh, and that actually looks full on Ray Harryhausen. That looks like yeah. stop motion. It looks terrible. I think that's an um, insult to Ray Harryhausen. Yeah. They dig one bloke out and he's barely, it's like he's barely, they like go, oh, they put a spade in. They go, we've got one. And they pull him up and he just shakes a bit of snow off him. <laughs> that, that's it. It's like he had a light dossier. He didn't even need digging out. He could have just stood up. That's how much snow he had on him. There was one point when Gary just went, what the fuck? And I went, what? And he went, there's a man just with a spike through him. And indeed there was. Who was that? A, just a just a, an extra, Jen, with a pole oh, through him. I think I missed that. All of the extras speak in this like they're speaking to children. They're like, hello, how are you today? To everyone. It's, it's insane. Anyway... Rock Hudson's mother gets trapped in the hotel, dies of literally nothing while she's in there. She's fine, and then she just dies. Then she's brought back to life by the worst CPR I've ever seen by Mia Farrow. She actually then... exhales before she breathes into <laughs> her mouth. She goes... <sighs> <laughs> and so then she dies. This is the mother. Dies in a fiery blaze at the bottom of a ravine. And that ending... With Mia Farrow hanging off a bridge. Oh, fucking hell. That's, and there's so many things wrong with it. I reckon you could write a dissertation. I mean, for a start, he climbs down to get her, to save her. And if anything, him climbing down made yeah. it worse situation way worse for everybody. He's quite paunchy in this film. So anyway, the mother's dead. Mia Farrow gets rescued. Immediately hands a glass of champagne to Rock Hudson. And I just want to remind you that he just saw his mum die in a burning car falling from a yeah. mountain. Mia Farrow's very smiley at this point. <laughs> She's drinking champagne. And then he says, I caused this, as if the knowledge of that suddenly makes him a decent human being. And then mm -hmm. she says, I love you. And I screamed, 
why? And the film ended. Oh, wait, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm going to correct you, Hannah, but it is well worth it. She says, I love you. And he nods and she goes, a lot. And he replies, goodbye, my friend. <laughs> I must have been too busy laughing at another bit. <laughs> and then she leaves. What about the ski lift? You haven't said what happens in the ski lift. Would you want to run it past us, Jen? Well, I mean, there he is. They, they save a child. They do save a child, but like it's unfortunate because he manages to get electrocuted directly afterwards. And then uh, they forget. I mean, how there's to not catch. a lot to say, really, is there? There was a reason why have... he took that random seven-year-old up on the uh, on the ski <laughs> lift. Did you have a favourite shit effect, anyone? I liked how blue the snow was. <laughs> it was very blue. <laughs> My favourite bit of the whole thing was there's something very creepy about the ice skater and the way the guy, like, who's supposed to be, I don't know, her dad, her trainer, I, I'm not sure. But the way he looked at her was unnerving <laughs> throughout. But my my absolute favourite bit of the film was when she's pirouetting and the snow hits her from the avalanche. Like, <laughs> um, just so the bad. Fa- the fact that she couldn't pirouette without falling over because her concentration was shot because there was a... a- a slightly better ice skater and her trainer leo whatever he was to her we never found out we never will but just his advice was love yourself he just whispered <laughs> love yourself in her face and she nodded sagely and i tell you what if it hadn't been for that avalanche i think she had it i think yeah. she had it again you can see that they've gone right i don't know we haven't got time to give this guy a personality so let's just get, maybe give him a hat like Mickey wears in Rocky <laughs> and then people can just draw their own conclusions from that. A hat and inherent creepiness. And yeah, I don't think, I don't think ice, um, I mean, I don't know any, so this is just a guess, but he did not look like how I would imagine the typical ice, you know, figure skating trainer to look. He's a bit, he looked more like, he looks more like a boxing trainer yeah. than... A, a figure skating trainer, in no, my mind. No, but that's because his entire personality was Mickey from Rocky's hat. But creepy. That's what it was to that story. <laughs> no, his hat. He, that's his personality. Yeah, yeah. Like the sex scenes, because pre-disaster shag, I got clocked up two of those. But Mia Farrow, or the the back of Mia Farrow's head, sleeps with Nick, the photographer, ranger, environmentalist. No one knows. Um, but my favourite bit of sexy talk was where she walked up the stairs and just went, it's an enlarger. <laughs> uh, his, and then he gave her a beer and she said, I don't know what to say. So they ended up having sex. And to be honest, I recognise that because I've been there myself. <laughs> uh, I had the <clears> best <throat> time watching this. Shall we tally? Yeah. I've scored poorly, I must say. Yeah, I've not scored well. I think I've got four. I think I've got two. Oh, no, I've got three. Would you say that... Did the disaster save their relationship? No. Goodbye, my friend. Uh, okay. I've got five. Ooh. Mm, fancy. Okay, old person sacrifice. Yep. They had to kill one character, so they went for the old lady. In the, I mean, to be honest, they did it in an original way. He was driving like an absolute prick. In, I mean, particularly given the icy conditions. 
Also, she wasn't the only character to die. There were loads of body bags at one there stage. There were a lot. Grim. <laughs> so that's one. If only we hadn't bought substandard kit. I mean, I, I can't say that that definitively happened, but Rock Hudson, I reckon that he would have gone for the cheapest quotes oh, on yeah. everything. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So that's two. Cassandra ignored, again. Screaming cowardice for the people pulling each other off the off the fence. And what the fuck is that font? I think it's Calibri, but there you have it. Okay. okay. I had pre-disaster shag, nature, you cruel mistress, bridge collapse, and where are the fucking women? Because obviously there were women in it, but they were very much stereotypes. And all of the extras seem to be men there seem to be a lot of men i wish i could remember the conversation i I mean i say i wish but also i'm glad i can't i sort of wish i could remember the conversation they had before they you know did the sex and wriggled up the bed under the duvet because it was like (laughs) jen i think what our listeners need to know is that this is easily accessible on youtube you can watch it again whenever you like it was just so weird. Um, I think she said marvellous a couple of times, which felt incongruous again. But anyway. Yeah, later tonight, I'm just going to throw yoghurt and Gary and put him outside the front door. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> oh my God, Mickey, can you get yoghurt? <laughs> We've got yoghurt. Yeah. Just one tub. We didn't, we didn't go mad. <laughs> okay. I actually think I've got four. So there's an event that's too important to cancel. Yes, there is. There's provably bad science. Yes, there is. They can't even hear... Like, he has to knock on the thing. You know when the when the avalanche is coming and that guy's like in his little hut thing watching the, watching the ice skating from behind the mm-hmm. thing? And the people are going like, Oi, mate, mate, it's behind you kind of thing. You're going to fucking hear it. I'm sorry. That's, that's nonsense. Um, can you smell burning? Yes, I can. The ambulance is on fire. And yep. uh, there's a sobbing child who has to jump into a like sheet. Uh, Mick, have you got anywhere on your list? Uh, skier goes into tree. Oh my god! When he <laughs> ski jumped into a tree, I didn't say that because I messaged it to you last night. After I'd messaged, what in sweet fancy fuck have I just watched? Uh, when he just ski jumps into a tree to escape a tiny avalanche at the beginning. I was like, yeah, I'm here for this film and I don't know why. <laughs> it's crazy. We've not even talked about the snowmobile fight. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. <laughs> 